Welcome to another episode of the Tromedy Hour, everybody. My name is Jonas Barnes. As usual, I am here with a wonderful guest, uh, getting therapeutic as fuck with you today. Uh, we Just as an intro to tell you guys everywhere, if you have not heard the show before, just real quick disclaimer, I'm not a doctor. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a psychologist. That's not what this is about. I'm just a regular person in the entertainment industry that has gone through a whole bunch of shit in my life and I was told to be quiet about it for most of my life and I don't like being quiet I'm a stand-up comic so talking is what I do so we bring people on we have them talk about their issues we talk about it in an open forum so hopefully if you're listening that you get some good out of this and you realize that you are not alone in your struggles so that's what we're about today um my guest today is somebody i'm so happy uh that they were able to come on today um and i knew them from uh way back in portland days before i ever even moved to new york um and i've also known about them through writing and multiple other things but i'm gonna let them give you all the dish on them so uh my guest today l stanger how you doing Hey, Jonas Barnes. I am doing so well. Thank you for having me. Of course. Thank you for coming on. So tell the people about yourself, who you are, what you do. Yeah, totally. So I have been a published internet uh, nude model since 2005. I've been a stripper in Portland, which is fully nude uh, since 2009, full time, three to five shifts a week. I work webcam for the last five or six years, which is solo sex shows or partnered sex shows to a live audience. I uh, make my own porn uh, for the last few years as well. I like to say I'm a mini escort because I have been paid for full service sex, not very often and not in the last two and a half years since the pandemic kicked off. Um, I'm a columnist or writer for various platforms. I've been on Men's Health. I had a parenting and sex advice column, uh, or not, I'm sorry, not column, contributions to Romper for a long time. I had a sex advice column for Thrillist.com back in the day and just written for various outlets. I got my education in criminology and studies of deviance. Uh, I hate calling it deviance because really anything outside <laughs> boxes, we often call deviance. Right, right. Right. Um, super, super kink shamey word. <laughs> it's totally, really what ab- it is. Absolutely. So I, I got my I got my education in the study of crime and how people interact psychologically with each other uh, under different variables and factors. I've been a consultant for nonprofits around people working in the sex industries or sex trafficking. I am not a survivor of sex trafficking. That's not been my experience. So I participate or I witness a lot of conversations, um, but I represent the consensual side of sexual labor. And I've been a lobbyist. I produce my own podcast a couple of them, Strange Bedfellows, you might know, or They Talk Sex, recently named Best Portland Podcast by Voters. Thank you. Fuck and, yeah. Yeah, thank you. And lastly, uh, since 2018, I'm 2018, I am a certified sex educator by the American Association of Sexuality Educators, Counselors, and Therapists, also known as ASECT. And I facilitate uh, therapy group meetings every once in a while for people also in the sex industries. So hello, I'm very hello, busy. Hello. <laughs> no, this is great. This is one of the biggest reasons I wanted to have you on is because of all of your experience, everything that you just talked about. And that's like when I had originally come to know who you were, I was living in Portland. I was a comedian in Portland. And with Portland, especially living in Portland, there's a blend. There's a line that kind of blends between 
um, between strippers and comedians because a lot of us know each other. Mm-hmm. And that's where I like it's interesting whenever I talk to friends here that are in New York that are dancers and they're like, how do you know so many strippers in Portland? And I was like, well, not only do I love strip clubs, but also I happen to be friends with a lot of them from, you know, comedy and stuff just because of the blend and, you know, all those things. And I always tell people, I'm like, yo, if you can go to Portland, like if you get the chance to go there and you happen to be a dancer, fucking go like it's it is the place, you know, mm-hmm. um, so but lucky. So I actually, real quick, I want to say just to that, because I, I don't want to let you move on without knowing this little nugget. I recently learned through my own po- podcasting and interviewing that stand-up comedy and burlesque or striptease are very embedded for over the last century. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. So it also makes sense. We were all working together and, you know, fucking and loving each other. So and mm-hmm. that to this day. Yep. Yeah, it's it, it was always interesting because especially when it came to Portland, there were so many things that I experienced there. Like I did comedy shows at swingers clubs, which was anywhere outside of Portland. For the most part, they were like, what the fuck? Like you're doing it at a swingers club. And I'm like, yeah, I got heckled by a blowjob. Like I legitimately was on stage trying to tell jokes and this person was giving a very enthusiastic blowjob. And I'm like, are you fucking kidding me? Like right now? Like this is the this is the build up to the punchline, and I'm just hearing sloppy enthusiasm going on in the middle of the crowd, and so I had to abandon my joke because I mean you can't compete against a blowjob happening live in front of you, so I was like, well, this joke is over, and then I just started like sports commentating their technique. Oh was, my god! I, I had to. I was like, I don't know what the fuck else to do, so I was like, all right, let's do this now. So straight up, just went into like John Madden mode. And oh my god now she's clutching the balls but ba- yeah basically yeah and i was like and we're going south she's grabbing the balls with all five fingers like <laughs> just shit like that you know <laughs> and it was fun and like after it was done and everything and i was like can you just like come already so i can hit my punchline please <laughs> but it's a uh, punchline yeah yeah it was ridiculous and so but it was also one of the like more fun shows that i've ever done and there's a thing here in brooklyn uh where i'm at where i live now that is similar but it is a um it is a mostly polyamorous community Mm. but it's also a sex club so it's kind of a little bit of both and they do comedy shows there too and um i talked to the person that ran that show he was like well there will not be any fucking during the show however before and after (laughs) oh good well at least you can hit your punchlines this time all the way Right. Absolutely. So it was like, okay, at least you're not going to get thrown off by that. Um, That's so funny. But yeah, Portland, Portland has always been a part of my life. I was actually born in Portland. I was born homeless in Portland, um, which is wild. Um, I always like to say that my very first apartment was the doorway of Jake's Seafood, um, which is wild. Um, And my mom, my mom actually was an exotic dancer to uh, to help keep us alive. So I have a lot of roots. I have a lot of roots in Portland. Um, But yeah, your experiences all across the board, which is great. And like I said, I'm not a doctor, but you do have a lot of training. You have education, Um, you know. Yeah, definitely. I'm not a doctor either. I work with some doctors. I refer to doctors. Let me tell you how hard it is to find uh, sexuality knowledgeable doctors because most doctors in their training, they spend less than an hour or a handful of hours on 
sexual function or dysfunction, uh, pleasure, physiology. And so a lot of doctors actually do great harm because they are not thinking of outliers. They're not thinking of inclusivity. They're thinking of what they've been trained to do, which is anything that is outside of right in the median of the average sample size might be wrong or, you know, dysfunctional. So, um, I do, I do, um, I am happy to refer to sex positive doctors or therapists, but it can be real tough to find them. So that's kind of also how I fit in is because I work in industries that have so much stigma and discrimination. And yet due to my own positionality, I am a privileged worker with resources, education, networking background. So often a lot of what I do is connect people in my industry with healthcare providers or harm reductionists or, you know, therapists or childcare providers that aren't going to out them, uh, make them lose their job or put their child custody at risk, because there is a lot of confusion and distrust for people who work in sex industries, as you probably know. 100%. Yeah. It's something that I've seen a lot too. When I, when I was living in Portland, um, before I moved to New York, I was with, uh, I was in a relationship with the co-producer of this show, Lauren Petrie. Um, her and I were in a relationship for quite a while. We moved to New York together. We were in a relationship in New York and the romantic relationship didn't work out, but like we've been best friends for the entire time. And when her and I were together, she was actively a webcam model. Mm-hmm. And um, she had it was kind of fun because we would go into the rooms and she would go upstairs and she would go up, and, you know, as we would say, she's going to work and, yep. uh, you know, she would go upstairs and I could hear her from upstairs and she would be like, it's so fucking slow tonight. And I was like, I was like, all right, let's do this. So I would log on to the site and it was usually Chatterbait and mm-hmm. I would log on to the site and I would go into the rooms and I would just start fucking egging dudes on yeah. and being like, and I would be like, oh my God, she's so hot, blah, 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 blah. Tip her. Yeah, yeah. And I would do that type of stuff. So like it would start to pick up and everything like that. She's like, oh my God, it's so cute. <laughs> she would come yes. down. So, yeah. so many of us need a hype person. And you just described what my uh, ex-husband and then my last long-term lover partner would do for me in the club. Like, let me go up and throw a bunch of money on your stage, even if it's our money, you know, something I learned through reading about people. A lot of us want what other people have because we perceive value and we also want to fit in. Isn't that funny? No, it's, it's so true. That's -hmm. something I noticed, especially with um, going to the clubs at Portland, um, to the clubs in Portland, I would do that with my friends because I would have friends that were dancing. It would be an especially slow night. It was usually like a generally shitty weeknight you know at insert club here and they would have uh you know they would have a week shift so i would go hang out and i would do that same thing that you're talking about i would just do it with my friends though i'm like i'm gonna go get 20 dollars worth of ones and i'm just gonna start throwing them on stage when you're on stage just to get dudes to come to the rail you know (laughs) and it worked a lot like it absolutely did um sub club some clubs better than others but for the most part the consistency of success on that was um pretty high and it was always interesting just to see it like the pack mentality they're like oh fuck this dude's throwing money at her she must be hot you know like or whatever it is it's just like they would all flock down and do the same thing Mm -hmm. 
Yeah. And that's something, a hot tip to a lot of entertainers, just look busy, just walk around and say hi to people, pointless small talk, because you're still circulating and people see you and they trust you more because they're like, oh, this person's social. They have a lot of connections, even if that's not the case. Right. Yeah. And, you know, it's also interesting, too. This is something that's kind of like a, I guess, behind the curtain thing. When it comes to Portland, it's very open with the sex work and it's very open as far as the strip clubs go, because I noticed that you did mention full nude. That's not something that is everywhere. Like in New York, it's topless only and they're also dry. So they're dry clubs, topless only. Portland is like, let's get fucked up and it's full nude. Like Mm -hmm. it's gambling. It is. Yeah, it's wild. Yeah, the lottery and the alcohol. um, Yeah, actually, most of the country is like that, how you just described. And the reasoning behind it that is explained, because folks are like, why? Why is that? And the only reasoning I've ever heard is legislators that are socially conservative believe that if you have full nudity and alcohol, that the sexual assault, the rape is just going to be off the charts. Never mind the fact that you're literally in a venue Right. Um, so I talk to dancers from other places and they're like, oh, I don't know if it's any different. Like, I'm kind of scared to work in Portland. And I'm like, understandable. But when they come here, I think, well, I know a lot of folks tell me that the social stigma is less, um, but also the risk and reward is less, too, because New York strippers tend to make more money overall based on right. what I here than Portland strippers. The cost of living is higher in New York. You have more big, you know, rollers coming in. There's less clubs. So um, we talk about saturation, which is something that happens. You know, if there's 40 clubs in Multnomah County, which that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but pretty freaking close. Yeah, I was going to say it's pretty close. There's about 30 clubs in Portland proper. So you have a state population of like 4 million people. That's about the same population as the entire state of California, which has less clubs per capita. So, For sure. right. So there's a lot of interesting social dynamics that go on. And I've only worked in Portland, Oregon. So I hear from literally at this point, hundreds of other strippers and sex workers about their experience. Um, you know, racism is always a thing I don't have to navigate because I'm white, but I hear from black dancers that are traveling, you know, from New York, Georgia, Florida, Texas, that they have a harder time getting booked in Portland because the black population is overall lower. So they go into clubs and the clubs will do the thing. Some of them where they're like, oh, we already have girls that look like you, meaning one or two other black dancers. Right. So, right. That is something that's very common in New York, especially because like, here's the the interesting thing that I've seen the difference between New York and, um, and Portland specifically when it comes to, uh, strippers is that in the New York clubs, um, one of the people like so one of the people I work with just a real quick backstory is um, a publicist in porn. So um, I've done things with her for like side projects and stuff like that for like different web content and things like that, because she also kind of has that blend into the comedy industry as well from different people that work in porn. So I've worked with her doing sketches and things like that at different clubs in New York City. The thing with the clubs in New York City is the people that come to the clubs here the ones that are actually in like Manhattan specifically are always like finance bros or like older wall street dudes. Uh So they're dudes that have either their parents money or they are the parent that has the money Mm -hmm. and they're just coming in, throwing it at, um, throwing it at the dancers. And there's almost like the actual interaction between the dancers and the patrons is low. 
Mm. Like there's not, there's not a lot of back and forth. There's not a whole lot of backroom stuff. There's not a whole lot of like lap dances, privates, anything like that. Whereas in Portland, like it's the wild, wild West. Like y'all, y'all go crazy there. Like, you know, in a good way, but also sometimes in a, you know, I wouldn't say problematic way, but in sometimes depending on where it's at and how the situation is, I've seen people that are very drunk, you know, get in situations that if there wasn't a bouncer there um that was a good bouncer it could get crazy but you guys have great bouncers like you guys have some of the best security that i've ever seen in strip clubs i am really lucky to have trained some martial arts for for on and off a decade with some of the bouncers that i work with because yeah there's a difference between training with an instructor who's only ever trained on a mat versus people that are dealing with guns and knives and altercations mm-hmm. five nights a week. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. The last thing I'll say about this, and then we should probably talk about trauma, LOL. Um, <laughs> ha, something ha. I hear in, yeah, I know. Something I hear in Portland a lot is people will say, oh, it's just like a bar, but with titties. Which oh. Oh. is, wow, I'm really glad you feel comfortable and there's not this huge stigma for you. But at the same time, this is why a lot of people in Portland who work in entertainment struggle to make decent income because a lot of folks don't tip them. They're like, oh, here's $2 for seven minutes of your naked dancing and acrobatics. This is just right. It's yeah. wild. The New, York wild. Bros, the New York bros are coming in and their whole life is about commodity and capitalism and showing off and suits. So yeah, they're going to throw a bunch of money because it's not for anyone else than probably their self-esteem and their ego. <laughs> right. thousand percent. Um, this is the last thing that I want to bring up on this too, because the thing that you mentioned about how people were afraid to do, you know, afraid to dance in Portland. Mm-hmm. So I won't name drop clubs and I won't name drop who these people are or anything like that, but there is a very specific bouncer at a very specific club that I was at with one of my friends that was out of town and they were a dancer from out of town. And they also exhibited kind of the same thing. They're like, yo, like people are drunk here. Like it's crazy, like blah, blah, blah. And I was like, have you seen the bouncer? And they were like, well, no. Is it John? Uh, So here's the thing. I was like, I was like, have you seen the bouncer? And they just go, no. And I was like, okay, first off, I was like, first off, he blends in, but he shouldn't. And then I kind of like did the motion to the right and she saw his vest and all of like the knives and shit that he had. Mm-hmm. And she was just like, holy fuck. She goes, okay, I'm less worried. And I was like, I was like, I think you, I was like, I think you underestimate maybe how these people are because like these dudes, these bouncers and stuff, like they will throw the fuck down if they have to, you know, and I've seen it happen. I've seen it happen where it's just like, oh, that guy just got kicked out aggressively because he was, you know, he was getting too touchy mm-hmm. Can't do it. Can't do it at all. Yeah, um, I can only speak to Portland, but I know exactly what you're talking about. He He's such a beast with a sweetheart. The last time I man. saw that man. Yeah. I was actually in my car uh, outside in the daytime. I was getting something else and we've actually never worked a shift together. We've just been uh, peripheral to each other, but yeah, big scary man comes over and we held hands and talked about how we are feeling like survivors despite all of the strife uh, due to pandemic and and everything extra in the last yeah. years. Yeah. Yeah, he's he is. He's the sweetest guy. And that's also something that changed with you guys during the pandemic. And this is also something that we'll kind of go into as some other conversation here. 
Portland, Portland made a transition during the pandemic to drive through strip clubs. Oh, I worked in it. What was the experience with that? So there was one, I'll tell you, there was one and it was at my former club where I danced for 11 years. Um, And it was a really clever pivot that unfortunately I will say did not work out because it was very costly to maintain. So seemed like it. Yeah. Building a pop-up structure, like a large tent where cars can drive through with stages on either side where it's safe enough. And you also have speakers and lights and fog machines and, you know, buckets for the money and the cleaning stuff for the stage. Like that's a lot of work. And then flaggers for the street. It was intensely fun for about a month when that went viral. And it gave us hope because when you are dancing masked dressed like the fucking apocalypse is coming um and you're using like a trash claw picker upper to hand dollars across front you know from the cars because you're supposed to at that time six feet away or more it was such a dystopian feeling of let's try to thrive while we're trying to survive and uh yeah, it was it was not something that had longevity, but I'm glad I got to be a part of it. And then yeah. now clubs are back to not their full functioning. A lot of clubs still have shorter hours and restricted menus or I mean, we have to have food. That's the other thing in Oregon, because we all have booze. If you have booze, you also have to provide food for people. Um, but yeah, we're still you know, it's as we record this, it is mid September in 2022 and we've been dealing with pandemic stuff for two and a half years. And, um, I have seen, this is where it starts to get dark. You know, Mm -hmm. two of the people I loved the most died by suicide in the last year and a half. And also there's been people who've died from fentanyl in the last couple years that I knew. Um, and I will say that it directly correlates to the lack of social connectiveness and support the, uh, decrease in income that we've all been able to earn. Yeah. Um, and that has to do with not just the shutdown, but outside impacts like bad laws and practices, bad uh, Internet liability laws. Um, it's just harder for us to get paid. You have banking platforms and companies that don't want to work with adult companies because you have anti-porn and porn abolitionists blaming these adult platforms for child sexual abuse material. But I will tell you, fun fact, 99% more child sexual abuse material exists on Facebook than it does on Pornhub. This was by their own reports uh, as of their 2019 uh, reports for how many CSAM um, instances were reported on these websites. No one's saying shut down Facebook because there's more pedophiles or child sexual abuse material on there because everybody uses Facebook. Right. Really easy for folks to say, blame these porn companies, which look, capitalism is effed. People are imperfect. Um, Pornhub has in the past definitely messed up. So has Facebook, but Pornhub does something like in order to upload videos and have an account, you have to submit an ID and a social security number, and then you do tax and you don't have to do that on Facebook. And then also there's folks who literally their job as moderators on Pornhub is to watch every single video that is submitted so that they look for things that aren't allowed, um, such as, oh, this person looks really, really young. So, and Pornhub pays for therapy for these moderators who have to dig through really, really 
disturbing material because let's face it humans make all kinds of media on oh, yeah. a spectrum of you know what's lovely and what's considered disturbing and i'll include horror movies in that i don't watch horror movies i don't like watching people be tortured even if it's pretend i sure. don't understand why some people enjoy this but it's a huge industry so oh yeah right that's um, actually hilarious that you bring that up as my other podcast is called another goddamn horror podcast and and we get into we get into conversations about that for sure because there's parts right. of it that are just like oh who the fuck is this for like, right yeah. so and i've been you know and here's the thing where it's like okay my job as an inclusive sex educator and harm reductionist is to not yuck somebody else's yum and yeah. when it comes down to it are the people participating informed about what they're doing you know like is the container something they all agreed on if they're getting paid do they know how much if they're not is that okay because it's for art but i've had a few friends be like hey l i'm making this horror porn where like i'm going to be chased and then like you know raped and murdered or whatever like the pay is really good it's fake blood it's super fun like do you want to be a part of it and for my own like ideology i don't want to participate in something like that sure but i understand that a lot of people it's an outlet for them so who am i to judge so, and also, you know, folks watch things like popple, pimple popping videos or like right. eating contests. Like we put our bodies and our minds through so much um, by our own consent that porn really, I think it's blamed because you throw genitals into it. And a lot of us have trauma and feelings around sexual material, sexual interaction. So I really just want to encourage literacy when someone sees something that's disturbing to try to zoom out and be like, well, what do I know? Right. You know, do I know anything at all? If I don't, then I'm going to operate under the assumption that this was made consensually by actors who knew what they were doing. And until I hear otherwise, I'm just going to relinquish myself of any fears. Yeah. And that's, you know, you bring up a lot of good things on that. And I think when it comes to like when it comes to the entertainment industry, especially when it comes to material or subjects or things like that, that are quote unquote disturbing, taking that step back and looking at it from kind of a wider lens, I feel like is always important because it's kind of like what is on, what is underneath the surface of it you know you have to get to you have to get to what's underneath and not just what you're seeing right up at the top of it and that is something that we definitely do talk about with horror movies um over on the other show because there's parts of horror that i think um there's parts of it that are so fantastical that i feel like people disconnect from any reality base to it and like that's okay like that's totally I, I feel like that's something that's common but then once you start getting into horror films that are based in so much realism and so much like real actual trauma and stuff like that that's where you kind of have to take that step back and look at it and be like okay this isn't like a monster movie like a you know like a jason Voorhees thing mm -hmm. like this is a for fucking real thing that happens like you know, mm -hmm. this is this is very based in reality. So what is the underlying look at that? Like, why is this something that why is this something that's put out there? And what is the purpose behind it? You know, mm -hmm. there's lots of things that I feel like you have to look at with that when it comes to entertainment mm -hmm. and <clears throat> real quote. Like, so I wanted to kind of jump into this with you because the experience that you have across the board with everything that you do, what on a personal level, what are the mental health issues that you deal with? or that you have experience with, you know, yeah. like depression, trauma, grief, like PTSD, like any things like that. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm almost 36 years old. I was 34 uh, when I was screened and then diagnosed as autistic, which was so helpful for me because 
I'd been researching uh, and looking into this for the last few years. And when I got my diagnosis, I was like, hey, mom, guess what? All these things. <laughs> um, so and separately, you know, we could go do a whole different episode about autism and how our culture does not allow people to show up as their authentic selves. So that means, you know, if you see stimming, like flapping or yeah. tapping or, you know, a lot of autists are being told that we need to not do that shit so that we blend in, which masking can be so stressful because the external world is telling you you're not good enough. And also you're constantly trying to read other people for cues about what is appropriate in this instance. What are we doing? What should I do? Um, so autism is a whole other thing that I think, and I, I know a lot of children are traumatized in early age from either so-called treatment or outside pressures. Um, when really it's like, look, your child's brain is different. Um, they literally do not like light touch because they can literally feel it more in their nerve endings because their brain is slightly wired differently. You know, I could look at a book and like a, a page and I could read it in two seconds because I'm like, okay, paragraph, paragraph. But I have a really hard time hearing people eat because I can hear everything in their mouths. It's oh, I hate that so much. <laughs> misophonia. There's, yeah, there's nothing a noise. There's no noise that makes my brain want to split in two mm -hmm. than hearing somebody eat. It's just like. <sighs> like everything that makes my skin crawl it legitimately makes my skin crawl yeah I open all my partners know I open a window or I put on some white noise but okay so autism is like a whole thing and I just found that out and it's been hugely helpful about the ways that I understand that my brain processes information and stimulus and also how I interact with other people like I do not understand why people ask me that they want my honest opinion and then when I give them my honest opinion they get mad at me so I've learned to kind of consider what is this person actually asking and what do they want to hear? Right. Uh, Listen, so, we'll, we'll do a round two on this and we'll, we'll dive into autism because there's a lot of things that you and I have to talk about on that, that I'm, I can already tell. Um, yeah. So we, we will definitely do a second episode that deals a I lot with that part. Love to. Okay. So yeah. moving from autism, I also found out that there is a name for my attachment issues and that is attachment wounding. Um, I, Ooh, have I haven't heard that one. Yeah. So attachment wounding theory, I'm not an expert because again, I just learned that this is a thing a couple of years ago. So attachment wounding can be a part of complex PTSD because if you have a unreliable or unreasonable or erratic caregiver who shows up differently, very consistently to you, if you're a child and you're like, Hey, mommy, daddy, whoever, look at my drawing. And maybe one day they're like, Oh, that's beautiful. You're the best, smartest child in the world, you know, cause they're having a good day. But right. on another day, they're like, oh, I don't have time for that. Or like, get the fuck out of my face. Um, so that can make it very difficult for children to know how to show up and how to exist when the caregivers around them are not being consistent. So you'll see adults grow up and we have anxious attachment or avoidant attachment because our attachment to the people around us growing up was not secure. Um, okay. Yeah. So that's a fun one. Uh, yeah. Yep. Attachment wounding. Uh, I, had, I had heard of trauma bonding, which is a thing that's a, it's a whole different thing, but yeah. trauma bonding and this, they sound name wise, like they would go together. Um, but I they're, wish I they're knew very different about, things. Yeah. I would, I would definitely ask someone in that field more specifically. Uh, I wish I could tell you. Um, I, let's see grief. I, I didn't have a whole lot of experience with grief as a child or adolescent. Um, which I now am 
very aware of how grief is shaping my 10 year old's life. Our, our housemate, my, my boyfriend, lover, partner, best friend, he died by gun suicide in our driveway a year and a half ago. Um, I was there. I held his hand while his body stopped moving. <laughs> oh, wow. Yeah. So, and then the cops came and as I know, because I studied procedure, I was right. interrogated three times separately because they wanted to eliminate me as a suspect. Sure. Um, and then also I stood by the crime scene while they processed it and made small talk like they were at a barbecue because Fuck. it was just another shift to them. Yeah. Yeah. Shit like, wow, I've never seen a bullet do that before. Or Jesus cops, Christ. Yeah. One of the cops asked me if I had hops growing in my yard. No. Are you, are you fucking kidding me? Yeah, who gives wow. a shit? right yeah um one of the other ones there was there was multiple officers there and there was the uh, the crime scene forensics processors uh but one of the officers actually had to go and tell the other ones like hey these people lost someone dear to them if we could um change our conduct please which i appreciated yeah maybe not um, ask them about their fucking plants in their yard like yeah. um so the suicide was one thing um, the fallout from the suicide was interesting because as a public figure, uh, I already knew that there was going to be external, you know, criticism from people who didn't know me, didn't know him. Sure. One of my friends who also works in industry, he's owned venues for years. He's seen so much. And he said, do you think people are going to blame you for this? Do you think people are going to start rumors that you did it? And I said, oh, absolutely. And some folks did. And it was people I'd never met or it was folks with an ax to grind where I had said, you know, like, hey, I don't want to work with you. I don't want to fuck you. I don't want to date you. Their right. internalized feelings of rejection and them not being able to deal with it. Um, yeah, that was that was really intense. I never thought I would see a person that I barely knew and that didn't know us tell folks that I was abusing Brian. And when I contacted this person directly, because I saw them making this claim in writing to someone else, I said, why would you say this? Right. And of course, I didn't get like the heart opening answer I was hoping for. They called me a crazy bitch and blocked me. So it's been really interesting to see how people will try to make a horrific incident relate to them in a way for clout or attention, um, and also how people will try to make trauma theirs when it's not i saw folks that again didn't really know us that closely and say stuff like he was my best friend i'm like no brian hated you he told me that while i was in the tub two weeks before he died <laughs> right so um, real quick and i don't want to cut you off on the story yeah, but full no, disclosure we do need to move on. no 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 full disclosure on this i saw I, I, from an outside perspective, because yeah. i knew you online i you saw, saw you i saw you going through this process on facebook and when I say on Facebook, what I mean is that I saw you go through this process and I saw you almost go through a form of therapy publicly. Mm -hmm. And it was an interesting thing to see because first off, this was not the subject that I was going to broach. I was going to let the, let you bring that up if you wanted to. But, oh. um, but when I watched it happen on Facebook, it actually, I mean, like, I already had a lot of respect for you as it was, but seeing you deal with that situation on a public forum in the way that you did um, gave me so much more respect for you because people were shitty, yeah. like legitimately. And that's just like stuff that I'd seen underneath, like, you know, even just regular posts that you would make 
about the situation that was stuff like, you know, I need some time to grieve, et cetera, et cetera. And then people would get shitty on those posts. And it was like, what the fuck is going on with your life that you have to do that? You know, and the way that you handled those situations was, um, I, the best way for me to put it is emotionally professional. Like you were very, you were very like even keel about it. You were not like, I'll fucking end you. But you also were not like, you know, <laughs> like you were not like, this is not okay. Like you didn't even engage with them. It more was like, like, I understand you're probably going through something too, or you would have never said this. So we're going to move on, you know? Good. Okay, good. I you really handled it well. Thank you. It was all quite a blur. I had, I had really good support too. And, you know, I had suicide literacy, literacy to some degree because Brian had disclosed to me two years prior before he died um, about an attempt. And he told me he'd been suicidal since he was eight years old. And this was Ooh. due to child abuse and neglect um, with things like he was, he was hit all the time. I'm bringing this up because I want people to know what they should not do. And if they have done to their children, you can still apologize when they're adults. Yeah. Brian was angry that his parents never apologized for the physical abuse. Um, and then the neglect, there was another household where his caregivers prioritized their dating and their other children and other relationships. And he knew that. Um, and so after he died, it was, you know, honestly, it was, it was an opportunity for me to make some things known that B had wanted to be known. Uh, so I did communicate to some people who had hurt him. No, he doesn't want, you know, Brian did not want you to have all of his art because when he was a child, you told him his art was weird and creepy and you took his notebooks away, you know, stuff like that. Um, yeah. So you were the so voice for that type of stuff. Yeah. So it was, you know, it was interesting because I felt like I had to kind of put some things to rest for him while trying to navigate my own like loneliness and loss. So I'm really sure. glad you feel like I dealt with it well. No, you did. And like I've seen I've seen people have to deal with things in similar fashions, whether it, you know, it was somebody that committed suicide that was close to them. And the fallout from that mm -hmm. is always something that is um, an immediately unknown water that you have to navigate through because you don't know what's in that water. You have no idea until it happens and there's no way to prepare for it. Um, you know, it's so, like I said, from, from the outside looking in, you definitely did handle that in a way that I think most people wouldn't have been able to, um, because well, I have practice. <laughs> yeah, you know, it's, it's always, it's always interesting to say that too. Like, you know, I have practice with this whole situation. Um, Can I real quick before we move on. Cause I no, know please jump in. Yeah so much we want to talk about. So something I learned while reading about suicide and grief healing is um, I'm really encouraging folks to say died by suicide rather than committed suicide, because there's an interesting shift of blame that happens when we say committed sure. as if this person committed a crime. And you're not, I mean, you just use this turn of phrase, but it's so common. And this is why I bring this up because this is something I also said. And now I don't uh, I'm glad but, you're bringing it up, by the way. Please do. Thank yeah. you. Thank you, Jonas. So Brian died by suicide. Brian killed himself because of all of these external factors where he had, you know, severe attachment wounding. Um, he had chronic pain. He dealt with the oppression of capitalism his whole life. And by that, I say we really treat our men. I mean, all of our people as labor that's throwaway, but poor people and especially men. 
um, and especially men of color, which he was not, but he was a poor white man who grew up in a poorish area and then lived in Portland. But we treat them like expendable labor, and that is low wages and long shifts. Mm-hmm. And he had no hope and no way to afford a better future. So the external factors, and then also homophobia contributed. Brian was a queer man. Um, all of these things made him feel over his life that he had no hope, had no future, was not worthy of the love. Um, so yeah, I just really want to bring that up for people uh, to consider the changing of the turn of phrase died by suicide instead of committed suicide. No, I think it's great that you bring that up. And there's certain things I think with terminology that are definitely important. And I mean, obviously we're in 2022, so we deal with a lot of different terminology things and like, and a lot of it stems to sexuality and pronouns and identities and stuff like that. But I think it's also very important to bring up things like that. Um, talking about, you know, committed suicide versus died by suicide, because it this is also something that I've dealt with a lot in my life. Um, I've had friends, in fact, coming up on Halloween, this uh, little side note story, last year, uh, my friend Xavier, um, he died by suicide on Halloween morning. And he's somebody who my room right now is literally covered in his art because he was an artist um, and he made canvases and he like he loved nothing more than to make art. That was his thing. And he always had problems with depression. He had problems with drug use. He had problems with multiple different things. And the whole situation surrounding him dying by suicide was really fucked up. But because he was also a comic and because I'm, you know, I'm a comedian and most of our friends are comedians. When it happened, the way that we announced it was on Facebook, we were like, this motherfucker just ruined Halloween for all of us. (laughs) Indeed. yeah and then so like all of our friends popped up and we're like uh you know like uh you know like we're we were saying stuff like xavier you fucking dick you just ruined halloween for the rest of our lives (laughs) r.i.p you son of a bitch and then everybody Uh would be like what's happening (laughs) you know like and we would have to go into it but it was our way of coping with it you know um and yeah yeah, i think changing that terminology is very important and so this modeling that yeah, absolutely. And this actually leads into another thing. So with you doing the amount of sex work that you do and how long you how long you've been doing it, do you feel like sex work has been something that has helped your mental health and helped your processing with different things that you go through? So this is interesting. I have thrived in this environment, but I want to say that I, again, can attribute some of this to my own privilege and positionality in culture. Like I am a white straight sized cis female in a culture that loves white straight sized cis females, um, and props them up quite often. And by this, I mean, it's harder for people with bigger bodies or visible disabilities or people of color or hairy women sometimes, you know, um, or like male strippers, who don't show big erect dicks, like good luck getting booked because even though people love all kinds of different bodies and things, we still have a lot of ideals on what we think we want to see or booking managers think they want to see. So I have an easier time getting hired. Um, Managers might respect me more because I'm educated and I've been around. Um, I definitely have said before that I have witnessed peers and coworkers doing sex work And I see how, yes, they are able to support themselves in a way that no one else their age might be able to say they're doing well, but it might be compounding the issues that they already have. Um, 
So if people who dealt with child sexual abuse um, are working in a sex work environment, something that can come up is unwanted touching by clients can be extra triggering when you already have a backstory of consent and boundary violations. I did not experience child abuse. Um, I, I experienced like partner abuse in my teens to my early 20s. Uh, but I've also worked through that and I've been in therapy once a week for 10, 11 years. Oh, okay. Um, so you've been in therapy for quite a while. Yeah. Oh, I, yeah. We can talk about that. Um, so, <laughs> so there is no, like, is sex work good or bad for you? It's been good for me. I'm a very sexual person with again, privilege and tools. And I enjoy this environment, but capitalism sucks ass. And if you can't get a job doing a conventional you know, bit of work. So at a desk or a gas station or a barista, because people aren't hiring or whatever, if you can do sex work and make money, that's your best option. And so that's why we say, you know, choice under capitalism, because would someone be dancing naked and dealing with, you know, ridiculous, annoying questions or unwanted touching if they didn't have to? Probably not. Right. Would someone be, you know, scraping the calluses off your feet and clipping your toenails? It's called, get, you know, getting a pedicure. Do you think someone would be doing that job if they didn't need to make money? Probably not. Do you think someone would be working sweaty, horrible, bent over in a kitchen, burning themselves, getting shouted at for minimum wage? Probably no. not. No. <laughs> right. So we all do a lot of things that kind of can fuck us up because we have to survive because we don't right. hunt or grow our food because that's not really realistic. Um, my birthday, I told you I turned 36 real soon. My birthday's in a week. I got a PTSD tattoo. It says PTSD and the S is a dollar sign. And I thought hard about this. It makes all the sense. Immediately makes sense. Right. Yeah. As a symbol. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I have a a friend of mine that does, uh, she does OnlyFans Mm -hmm. and she was hesitant to do it at first. And then once she started doing it, she immediately realized what her what her corner of that market was and what mm. she was comfortable with mm-hmm. and she does the girlfriend experience yes so like for her she was initially like i don't know if it's going to do anything good for me etc cetera, etc cetera. she was initially just going to do it for money and now she makes a shitload of money doing it but initially she was just going to do it for that mm-hmm. and then once she started doing it she was like oh fuck this is actually helping me yes like, She's yes. like, you know, I'm actually able to communicate with these people and talk with these people, but I don't have to worry about the things that I'm afraid of, you know? Yeah. Oh, oh God. I've grown. I mean, I hated my breasts um, until I saw other breasts and other people dancing and moving and being sexual and making money and getting, you know, complimented and adored for their bodies. And I was like, oh, wow, I've been lied to by culture. I don't need yeah. to look like a Barbie doll you know, for people to be interested in me or for me to be lucrative. Again, you know, I talked about like ideals and how we prop some people up, but in reality, like folks like all bodies, they like fat, they like hairy, they like stretch marks, you know, like some folks just want you to look like someone that they would date or marry. And then other people want you to look like a mystical fairy that came off the moon, you know, like decorate yourself however you want. But like I dealt with, um, disordered eating, which I picked up from my mother and the ballet community, uh, I dealt with that from age 14 to 22. If the ballet community, ballet community has got to be pretty brutal with that. Fucking brutal. Um, You know, so I dealt, yeah, disordered eating until I started stripping. And then I literally 
realize like I have to fuel my body or I'm not going to make money. I'm not going to have the energy to dance. Um, and so I eat, I'm a big fucking eater now. I can't believe I ever had disordered eating. I can, I'll never go back. I love food, you know, snacks, <laughs> snacks in between the club. And then in terms of like webcam or other thriving, I also do girlfriend experience. My, one of my subs is, uh, texting me right now. Uh, he's cleaning out the garage. Uh, he, you know, he, he wants me to check in with him about his day and also how his weight loss is going. <laughs> oh, there you go. Right. Um, and then I have folks that come to me and tell me things about their marriage or their relationships, whether it's to vent or for advice. Like what a what an honor, what an insight. Yeah. Uh, so there's a lot of there's a lot of comfortability yeah. with that, too, that goes into that type of a situation, because I feel like per, people that come to situations like that from the sub side and also, you know, like the people that are seeking out that girlfriend experience, like that's a lot of comfort to have in another person to mm -hmm. tell them those things and to, you know, put that kind of thing into their hands. Like, cause honestly, even somebody just checking in for, um, you know, weight loss or checking in for their day or something like that, just the accountability of that. Mm -hmm. That's sometimes that's a fucking hard thing for somebody to do, to give, you know, to give that, um, power over to somebody. Right. It's say, cool. To your question about has sex work been a positive experience for mental health? Overall, yes, I know so much more about people, but it comes at, it comes at like almost not a cost, but it comes to an awareness of now I am very aware of so much suffering or conflict that I never would have been exposed to because when people are coming to you with their problems or their trauma, you know, like I asked my therapist, do you have a therapist? She's like, oh, fuck. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Right. Um, so that's yes, very, that's a, that's a big thing that I think people don't realize many therapists also have a therapist. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So sex work has been great for me, but again, this was a choice. This was interest. Uh, I feel semi-socially supported and I've been able to navigate things like dating and relationships because also I don't, I don't have to keep this hidden from my family and I haven't for years. Yeah. Um, and there's just no, great. right. There's no repercussions in that realm. Like I'm not going to be, you know, kicked out of my church or I, you know, I might deal with weird looks from parents at the school if they know what I do, but whatever I covered in tattoos. So I deal with weird looks sometimes anyway, <laughs> which by the way, your tattoos fucking rock. Like I've always, I've always been a fan of the tattoos. I'm a fan of them in general, but yours uh, particularly are very, very cool. You have some great, some great work on you. Thank you. You know, my tattoos have made me very aware of how classism is so incredibly complicated because something I've noticed rich, wealthy, affluent people who, you know, some of these guys, like I, I don't look like their wife. I don't look like their girlfriend. They've never touched a woman or a body or a female person that looks like me. So they're fascinated. Are they going to want to bring me around to their country club? Absolutely not. You know, like <laughs> right. Woman situation like there's the whore. Right. Um, and when I you brought her to the golfing tournament, how dare you? How dare you? Right. <laughs> um, but it's also something that I can monetize because those clients are like, oh my God, I'm so into tattoos and my wife doesn't have any like, yes, I want to buy an hour of your time. And so that's interesting because then it's say I go the next day to like a really upscale, you know, food place or, 
or whatever environment, say I'm in a fancy snooty gallery in like Northwest Portland. Okay. Sure. I might get looked at like I am covered in dirt um, because I am assumed to be maybe too broke to be in that environment. And I've taken friends or partners out to like a fancy sushi restaurant or something where they're like, oh God, I feel like I shouldn't even be in here. And I'm like, we can afford to be in here just like everyone else. And oh, yeah. like that, we're probably going to tip the servers better than some of these rich douchebags. Oh yeah. So the class very true. Like, yeah. Real interesting how that shows up. So now this is something now, like I said, we're definitely going to do a round two because I want to get into therapy with you. I want to talk about the autism thing. There's a lot of stuff that we can definitely hit up on a second round of this, but I I do want to mention something because you do work in the club rotation. And this is something that I'm pretty passionate about when it comes to the entertainment industry in general. And it's the fostering of an addiction mentality that's within the entertainment industry and what i mean by that is that there are many things within the entertainment industry whether it's comedy music uh stripping uh sex work whatever it is that that i wouldn't say promotes addiction but Mm -hmm. it definitely does but it does i mean yeah it kind (laughs) of does like especially with comedy uh yeah you get two free drinks you get drink tickets and fucking insert Mm -hmm. thing here but when it comes to working in the club rotation as a stripper have you had to deal with any kind of addiction situations yourself or have you have you seen it be a problem within the club oh definitely i mean uh, so clients will be handing you drinks all night long i got you a shot come have a drink with me some people won't tip you unless you're drinking with them um i'm i've been a dry stripper for a year I was dry for two and a half years. I drank a little bit when B died by suicide. Um, There's alcoholism in my family. And I have noticed personally how alcohol impacts my body negatively. It really fucks with my moods. It fucks with my skin. I get extra puffy around the face uh, in a way that does not look flattering to me. Um, Weird. It's almost like alcohol is terrible for us. (laughs) It's almost like it's a poison, but it's legal (laughs) and very lucrative. So right. You know, and I don't want to talk too much shit because so many of my friends are bartenders. So I'm not saying like, you know, don't give them money or whatever, but no, there's a way uh, to drink responsibly. And I mean, there's a difference between somebody who has a problem with alcoholism and somebody who just goes out and has some drinks with friends. Right. Huge difference. You know, my experience is also, I don't know what other people put in their bodies on a grand scale, but I've never done cocaine. I've never done most drugs. I could say I smoke weed all the time for the last like seven or eight years. I'm actually cutting back because doing that a lot isn't good for you either. Folks Mm -hmm. look up cannabinoid hyperemesis syndrome or CHS. Ooh, I know what that is. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, that's real. That's an interesting Um, one. Yeah. So, okay. So I don't do a lot of drugs, but I definitely, you know, there's people who that's part of their hustle is like, oh, I'm going to do a bump or a line with so-and-so and we're going to hang out and he's going to pay me for like an hour or whatever the frick. Um, and uh, you know, Coke really makes a lot of people mean and angry and paranoid. And I've seen it just kind of destroy people's personalities. And cocaine Cocaine was my poison of choice for many years. I had to stop. It's a little over five years now, but yeah, I had to. Thank you. Yeah. I had to stop because it's a, I did so much Coke one night that I couldn't even close my mouth because my jaw was so tense. Jesus. I was like, that was, you know what? We're going to call that too much cocaine. (laughs) We're going to do, we're going to call that too much Coke for the night. (laughs) So there's a, there's a great book. It's a resource for research and citations about sex work. It's called sex work matters. Uh, the author's names, Ditmore and Hope. You can look that up. 
But okay. so I was reading, and it's just a collection of very inclusive studies and, and research about sex work because a lot of studies are really biased. Uh, turns out a lot of academics are biased and sex negative. Uh, weird. What? Get out weird. of here. <laughs> it's almost like they're studying something as an outsider with a bias. Um, so I'm Never. Reading <laughs> I'm reading Sex Work Matters, and it's talking about uh, sexual trauma in sex workers and how this massive, multiple massive studies, sex workers and civilians, which is non-sex workers, do not have a huge difference in the uh, partner violence or childhood experience violence. We don't. It's not like if you were molested, you're going to become a sex worker. And if you were molested, I'm very sorry, you didn't deserve that. But correct. the difference though, is that sex workers and civilians, sex workers tend to do a lot more drugs and drink often because our clients want to socialize with us while they are doing so. Mm-hmm. And then sometimes because we do it on breaks or just to prep for that client, you know, if your client is fucking smelly and rude and their fingernails are long and you're not looking forward to being touched by them, but you yep. like, you want the cash, you know, you might do a picker upper. I hit the vape. I hit the weed pen, uh, you know, before I'm like, fuck, I really don't want to go on stage. This crowd looks hostile. I need a little bit of energy. Let's hit the sativa. Here we go. Um, And that's something that I have to really scale back and just be like, look, homie, to myself, if I can't do something sober, I don't feel like I should be doing it personally. Sure. So that's where I'm at with that. I've had that conversation with myself when it comes to comedy and stuff like that. Really? Because, yeah, when you're on stage, you have audience members and stuff that'll want to send you a shot while you're on stage. And if you tell them no, or if Mm -hmm. you say, no, I'm not drinking or whatever, that crowd immediately turns. Mm -hmm. So they are. They are. And they don't want to feel judged either. Exactly. And a little behind the curtain thing on the comedy thing is that once I became sober, I had to tell bartenders when I would go to shows. First thing I would do when I would walk into a bar for the show, very first thing I would do is go to the bartender and be like, just so you know, I'm sober. So don't serve me anything tonight. Nothing. And Mm -hmm. then the bartender would be like, cool. And they like, they would just like, it was no big deal. But when it came to being on stage, I would have to tell the bartenders when I'm on stage, if somebody sends me a shot, send me a fake shot, like send me water or watered down Coke or whatever it is. Like if they say they want to give me a shot of Jaeger, then you need to give me some fucking dark root beer or whatever it is, you know, like, yeah, something that looks like what they think they just gave me. And I'll just do that on stage. And yep. go about my set. As far yep. as they know, I just took a shot of whiskey for them and it's fucking on. Let's go. But yeah, it's it's such a weird thing that you have to navigate. It really is. Yep. I've done that too, especially when I was stripping while pregnant. There was no way I was going to be drinking alcohol. That's actually how I had to learn to do this. Oh shit. Yeah. That's talk yeah. about a baptism by fire on that one. <laughs> yep. Yep. And I actually started so real quick on harm reduction, you know, yeah. what is and what is not. Something I still tell a lot of my coworkers is like, Hey, what are you drinking? If I get it bought for me, I'll just give you mine. Um, and some folks really, really like that because then sure. they don't have to spend their own money. So am I enabling them by giving them my alcohol when they wanted to drink in the first place? I don't know. Or is it, I'm preventing them from buying their own booze because strippers who are working should never have a tab. <laughs> Yeah, I don't, you know, I honestly, that's an interesting thing to bring up. I don't consider that enabling because, again, it's a difference if you know somebody is actively an alcoholic and has a problem with drinking 
if you actively know that and you give them your drink, I feel like that's maybe towing the line. But even at that, it's not your responsibility. Like, well, it, you know, it's yeah. kind of it is kind of a little bit of a double edged sword on that. But yeah. also ignorance is bliss. If you don't know that they're an alcoholic or if you don't actively know that they have an, a problem with drinking or that they drink in excess or whatever the case may be, giving them a free drink is no fucking problem. Like at that point, just like, yeah, loosen up. You got to deal with smelly Joe over here, you know, or like whatever it is. Long like, fingernails, Dennis. Right. Yeah. Again. Yeah. You got to deal with that. And this is also another thing like um, we're going to go a little over an hour on this and it's fine with me as long as it's fine with you. Um, right. But one thing that uh, because you said that you do light escorting, is that how you put it? Yeah, I said, I yeah, escorting light or mini escorting. Like, okay. I'm definitely happy to be paid to go to an event and hold hands or I've done cuddling, which I make the client sign or I request if they want to, then it's not really considered making, but I have them sign <laughs> a full contract and consent form where it's like, this is a non-sexual service. A lot of people still try to get sexual. Right. Uh, I am so down to fuck for money again, but I'll be honest, I don't have the time and the energy. <laughs> sure. I mean, a lot of goes at work. That's work, work. Like, work, work. Yeah. Right, right. Now, the reason yeah. I brought it up is because a friend of mine, um, I won't say his name, but he he was my uh, he was my cocaine partner for many years. Mm -hmm. And uh, he would he would do a bunch of blow and then he would call an escort and he would be with the escort for, let's say, an hour to two hours or whatever like that. And he would come back and it would always be the same question. Like, how was it? He's like, oh, we didn't fuck or anything. Yeah, and no I'm kidding like, you, Coke Dick. Well, yeah, yeah. First off, I knew that I was like, well, of course you didn't because you're, you got a fucking windsock going on right now. But like, <laughs> this is the thing that was kind of fucked up, though, because maybe you can answer this question for me. He would call an escort and then he would basically treat it like a therapy session. Yeah. Which means that he would invite them over. They would sit on the bed in this fucking crazy hotel room that he bought with his Coke money. And they would, he would just unload all of his feelings onto what I consider this poor girl at this point, just like, Oh, you have to hear all of his shit for two hours and then come back. And I ended up talking to one of my escort friends and she was like, that is arguably more rough of a night then if the dude just throws a couple of pumps in me, blows it on yeah. my chest and is like, all right, I'm out. Like, oh my God. Homegirl, use a condom. But yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no, I definitely, I'm thinking about how, how common it is that like really folks just want someone to talk to and connect with. And that feels very intimate and it is. And also I definitely have a long time escort friend. She's worked all over the world and she's like, I will, you know, I'll fuck anybody who's polite and with a condom and lucrative, but like, right. I don't want to hang out with you. Exactly. Yeah. It's like, we don't need to be friends. Like, I don't fucking, I don't need to know about your parents. What are you doing? Like, I, you know, I'm kind of the opposite where I'm like, tell me, but also if the thing about like a client who wants to, you know, touch boobs and ejaculate, like good for them that can take, you know, like in my experience, 15 to 20 minutes. Yeah. But talking for two hours. Yeah. It's just the time. It just takes so much longer. You just want to get the appointment and go <laughs> for sure. And that's kind of what she was saying. She was like, one thing is about it. It's like, first off, it's a lot. She was like, because these guys don't call her over there to just talk about fun, happy things. It's, no. just, it's always like, no, I've been crying for four hours. So let's talk about it. So yeah. like, oh, fuck. 
<laughs> oh God, people have disclosed things to me where I'm like, oh wow, you should be in jail for what you did, you know. And I'm not. Uh, a you partial. said you said bad things. <laughs> yeah, I gotta I gotta reel that back. So I don't want to. I'm not a carceral feminist. I actually don't believe. <laughs> I went to school for criminology, but turns out I didn't want to work in law enforcement because it turned out I figured out how it really fucks up people and doesn't allow them to heal or teach them or give them tools. So Ted Bundy also went to school for criminology. So you I know. know he also worked the <laughs> suicide prevention hotline. He did, which is yeah. talk um, about a weird storyline with that guy. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. Um Anne Rule, the crime writer, she wrote A Stranger Beside Me, wrote all about that. Anne Rule was one of the first crime writers she was the first known woman crime writer and she used to actually write under the pen name andy stack because she didn't think people would take her seriously she was oh, yeah yeah right? yeah yeah um so i want to reel it back uh yeah sometimes people tell me things where i'm like holy shit you need massive intervention sure <laughs> um but yeah just the things people can disclose is like about their own childhood abuse or partner issues or substance abuse issues or um I had a man who wasn't even a client. He's one of the many unhoused folks living around downtown Portland. And he came over, you know, like I watched him smoke something out of tinfoil. And then he came over to have a chat. He asked uh, if he could have a tarot reading by the gal who used to work at the club. I said, she's not here anymore. Um, And he said, well, are you safe? I want to make sure you gals are safe. And I'm thinking, homie like i can see like your arms are infected and you're living outside with a dog that's not walking properly and um am i safe like what a sweet thing to ask and he pulls out a camping knife and gives me his camping knife oh shit (laughs) like i want you ladies to be safe while we're out here um so even stuff like that like he didn't pay me for that interaction that man was not a client that was just a person out in the world But the point I'm trying to make is like, it's so possible and common for me and a lot of other people working in these really intimate environments where we just have these micro connections to total strangers that can be so impactful. Um, And I feel that way about sex work quite often. Like I might not know your full name or never see you again, but you just told me something so tender or we just gave each other like a gift of solidarity uh, you gave me cash, which is also nice. Yeah, that's always always a good plus. <laughs> yeah, but but yeah, I definitely feel like I move through the world as a facilitator, um, and then also just like a lifelong learner. And sex work has been really, really instrumental to that for me. Which is great. And that's also like, again, when I asked you that, that's definitely more of, I wanted to see what your personal experience with it is, because I feel like the more experiences that people talk about with it, the better. And that puts more out there, more knowledge, more education, um, more firsthand experience for other people to relate to. So that's why that's definitely why I wanted to go down that road with you. Um, And also uh, to wrap up part one of this, because we will definitely have a part two as long as you're down for it, because this has been a great conversation. Um, So to wrap up part one here, if you could choose one topic that like is grief or trauma or addiction or mental health if you could choose like one topic or think of one topic that you feel like could use more exposure or more more open conversation that still people keep quiet about like what what would jump into your head for that Mm. so mental health is definitely a good umbrella term for all of these um i 
because like you brought up you brought up autism earlier and this is also yeah. one of the reasons that i kind of was curious about this question because autism i feel like it's talked about in a very um apologizing way yeah it's yeah in a very polarizing and uneducated way mm-hmm. so um, that was one that i one that i was thinking of gosh i i kind of want to break free of all of the options you just gave me and i feel like we could as a society really learn more about inclusive sexuality and so that means all kinds of sexualities so people that don't get erect (laughs) sexualities people that don't get wet people that don't want to touch genitals at all you know kinksters um power dynamics um there's so much we think we know about sex which is so so wrong and i think and i believe this is why so many people have unsatisfactory sexual interactions because they're following a model that has been prescribed for them which is often kissing touching oral piv sex penis and vagina yeah and a lot of people actually don't like a lot of those things what if you don't like kissing because of sensory issues you know which could relate to autism or anything else you know what if you don't want piv because you have child sexual abuse in your history or unwanted penetration um you know, what if your orgasm looks like sitting on top of a vibrator while your partner holds you? Okay. Um, yeah. We have, yeah. Like I, I would really love to see all of us try to expand our ideas of what sexuality even means in the first place, because it comes down to pleasure and consent. So I like to say, if it feels good and it's not hurting anybody else, you should do it. I love that. That's, you know, it's interesting too, because I was telling you about Lauren uh, earlier. Mm-hmm. She was actually the one that kind of, she was the one that allowed me to stumble into what I was into. And because I didn't even realize it just because of my sexual past, mm-hmm. um, I had no idea, but it turns out I was into dominating and I was into choking Yeah, and, and yeah. I had, and I had no fucking idea that I was into it. And it just happened to be one day when we were being intimate, she said, I want you to choke me. And like, I'm a bigger guy. So mm-hmm. when I did it, like I, I approached it very um, hesitantly because I'm a big dude. Mm-hmm. And then she was like, no, I want you to do it. So then like I did it and I was like, Oh fuck. Like the, like the immediate reaction that my body had to the domination aspect of it mm-hmm. snowballed into me doing more research on it, me experimenting more with it a lot with her. Like, like she gets all the credit in the world Aww. for kind of opening up that world to me. And it was just like, Oh fuck. Like this is the thing that I've been into the whole time, but I just never really clicked on it because it wasn't it wasn't something that I was comfortable with a partner enough to do it because it was very um it was very like shunned upon mm-hmm. and then once it started it was like oh fuck this has been the whole time the whole time I've been into this I've wasted yeah. so many years like <laughs> you know a lot of us love power exchange play a lot of us like what 50 percent of people you'll see studies where it's like half of americans report being interested in kink and i'm like yeah because look at how we play look at how animals play look at how people play we wrestle we struggle we play keep away we play tickle games and as a parent the non-sexual side of struggle play is such a big part of parenting Mm -hmm. so i wanted to teach my child to be able to explain what they want to do 
and so she'll say like, can we play the tickle game where you like get my, my neck? Okay. So this is a request, right? right. And then she's going to say, no, 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 stop. So I knew when she was like four or five, I said, Hey honey, since you like playing these struggle games and I do too, we need a code word. So I know when you really want me to stop. So oh, okay. she picked a code word, which was, I think it was poodle. I don't even remember. Actually, I should ask her. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so that is very much like adults who are doing sex with a safe word, because when you say to people like, what's your safe word? And they say, well, I don't need a safe word or the safe word is no. I'm like, first of all, you need a safe word because otherwise you don't know when to actually stop and neither does your partner. Right. And no is not a safe word because how do you play a struggle game if no is the safe word? Because that means as soon as I say no, that means stop. Right. Exactly. Right. So I do consensual non-consent or rape role play with my partners sometimes and I instigate it and um, I provide the structure around it often because a lot of people don't have experience with this stuff. Um, of course. And it's been really healing for me to rewrite the scripts of my own, you know, teenage to adolescent sexual pressure, harassment, assault from my partners, where I get to direct the narrative. I get to say when this stops. And then I also get to come. <laughs> Always a good bonus. <laughs> that's the, you know, that's the point. Like I, for me, that's the point. I'm a very orgasmic person. I could come three to eight times a day by my own hand or someone else's, but um, even if you're not orgasming, even if you're not coming, like play is so healing and so helpful for myself coming is at some point, the point, True. Um, but the in-between the journey is such a huge part of it. And it relates to, yeah, how we communicate and then how our partner actually respects those boundaries, because you can't do play like this if your partner does not respect your boundaries. So that's another thing, um, that I think is a lot of a lot of conflict comes up for people because if your partner is not respecting your boundaries in the first place, you definitely don't have the capacity to do comp more complicated role play stuff like this. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right. And our culture doesn't teach consent well. So you see, no, how no, no, it's, it's, it's bad at that. <laughs> it's very yeah. bad at teaching that, yeah. you know, it's yeah. interesting because I bring this up in comedy. Sometimes part of one of my jokes that I bring up is I ask people like in the audience, if they're in a relationship, et cetera, et cetera. And one of the things that I tell people is I say, if you're into something in the bedroom, if you're into something, tell your partner as early as you're comfortable telling them. Mm -hmm. And I always say it because I'm like, because you don't want to have some hidden thing that's a surprise three years down the road, but also it makes it more fun. I was like, if you, if you have that conversation, like you guys have had sex and you have that conversation, it's like, all right, now that we've fucked, I want to let you know what I'm really into. Yeah. Then, it, then it like opens up a whole new world to you. And it's all related to a joke about sexuality and about how people don't want to sleep with bigger guys because of, you know, societal things and stuff like that and things like that but i always tell people i'm like you should try to fuck a fat dude at least once because yeah. i was like because not only are we into anything that you want to try with us at least once we'll give it a shot <laughs> i was like we'll give it a shot just because you know what we're down we're down for it i was like but also we uh because of again societal stuff i was like a dude will fuck you like a hungry person will eat 
when it comes to that because we don't know when the next meal is coming like we have no idea it's like so we will we will treat it nicely and we will give it attention like it's like so just give it a shot once this is why i like to fuck nerds because they're so grateful for you they are (laughs) they're not used to being appreciated no and like again if you throw it out there to again like a nerd a fat dude somebody that like you know and i say doesn't respect exactly if you throw it out to somebody like like i want to try this they'll fucking be right down for it they'll be like let's do it like give it a shot and then at the end of the day if it's something they're not into it's like all right well that was fun not my thing but glad we tried it out and that's just that is something that i think is a conversation between couples and between people that are getting intimate that i think is something that needs to be more of an open conversation that if you do have a kink or if you do have a thing, you know, whatever it is that makes you tick, mm-hmm. like that just is a conversation that I think should be had because there is always the possibility that you have that conversation and that your things just don't match up, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And if that's the case, that's cool. Like, that's fine. You know, you can still have a relationship without that being the case, but it is still something that's good to get on the table I feel like sooner than later um, because I feel like it makes the relationship more healthy moving forward. Yeah. You know, you can't force compatibility, but compatibility will be a lot easier to find when you're both honest about your wants and needs earlier. I definitely agree. Yep. Yeah. Well, this part one has been absolutely fantastic. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. I'm really, really happy that we had this conversation because there was a lot of stuff that I also learned on this as well. And I really do. Again, at the end of the day, the whole purpose of this show is to have these open conversations and hopefully somebody listens to it and they hear something that's like, you know what? I'm not alone and what I'm going through and these experiences aren't just my own, you know? Um, so Good. I think a lot of the stuff that we talked about today will definitely resonate with people. Um, where can people find you online? Where they, where can they look you up? Where can they find all your stuff? Oh, thank you for asking. So I am on Twitter at L Stanger, my name. Um, I'm still on Instagram at stripper writer, uh, but I am hella shadow banned for talking about things like flashers <laughs> and unsolicited dick pics. Um, I do remember that whole uh, that whole kerfuffle that happened. Uh, with yeah. that. <laughs> I've been deactivated twice and they never told me why. And I was like, mm, discrimination. They're just like, oh, my God, nobody can find you. <laughs> yeah, so weird. Um, my website is lstanger.com. You can find my porn at camsoda.com forward slash stripper writer. Fuck yeah. Well, everybody, you heard it from uh, heard it from L. You can find all of all the stuff there and also you uh you are one of the biggest proponents of cam soda that i've seen really in a long time. just as a side note it's yeah. it's one that like i see chatterbait pop up i see multiple uh-huh. different sites come up but you are one of the ones that's been very um very gung-ho about cam soda so you know they've been good to me uh they they really hosted a couple good feature shows for me during the pandemic and then it's nice because i can just pop on whenever i want and do webcam so I, I do like that one. No, I'm not getting paid to say this. I'm not an affiliate for them. I'll tell you when I'm an affiliate or getting paid to say something, but it's <laughs> not for them. Um, but yeah, I just like it because it's been around longer than OnlyFans and honestly hasn't done any of the weird payment issue stuff to a lot of creators yeah. that I'm aware of that OnlyFans has. Another yeah. hot tip before we go, if you're a creator, look to platforms that have longevity. And that means ones that have been around for a while because they're less likely to screw you over. And that means steal your money or just disappear as a platform with all of your content. 
Oh, absolutely. That is definitely that is definitely something we'll jump into with round two because I know a lot of stuff about that whole that whole side of it too. Um, so this has been fantastic. Part one's been awesome. Can't wait to have you back. Yeah, thank you so much. And Thanks. for anybody listening, if you're having any problems, if you're going through some shit right now, um, feel free to reach out to me at any time. I'm more than happy to listen, uh, more than happy to give any personal advice that I happen to have or to not give any at all. Um, sometimes you just need to get it out of your system. And I'm a big proponent of that. So you can always hit me up on Messenger. Um, over on Instagram, I'm at Jonas Barnes Comedy. You can hit me on Instagram messages there. Uh, Twitter at Jonas Barnes, same thing. You can definitely hit the DMs there. Uh, Facebook, real quick. I have like four profiles because I also say stuff that those platforms don't like sometimes. Uh, so the one that is always active is the one that has my profile picture, which is <laughs> Willem Dafoe's face on Guy Fieri's body uh, because I think that nightmare fuel is hilarious. Um, so that's... <laughs> That's always going to be the working profile picture. Um, so if you ever want to hit me up on Facebook and hit me up in the messages, I'm more than happy to listen there too. But uh, I do want to thank you, L, for coming on. Um, and I thank definitely you. want to thank everybody for listening tonight. And uh, hopefully you guys got something out of this. Um, hopefully you guys heard something here today that helps you. And in the meantime, uh, be good to yourself and each other. This has been the Traumedy Hour. Thank you guys so much.